I'm going to jump straight into the teaching today. And then um, if you could hold your questions till I get through the teaching, I've tried to compress it down short. Then we're going to have a, about a, you know, 15, 20 minute time where we can talk about it and the questions. The reason, <clears throat> one of the reasons that we switched the worship around is I'm going to try to persuade you to be completely free when you leave here from a very destructive interpretation of a doctrine. And uh, if you remember, we were looking through particulars. And uh, so we're going to talk about sovereignty. And I promised you we'd, we'd have room for the questions that we were talking about earlier. And, but I think that there's something really important. So as I was studying about this, I discovered something that just absolutely stunned me. And I want to be able to pass that on to you. Then we're going to have time for questions. Then we're going to get back in worship. And I want you to understand that I believe something and I know something that is, I, I'm absolutely sure it's true. You don't change by agreeing with what I say or any teacher. You change by having an encounter with God and having a truth made real in your heart. And so there's a role for teaching, but uh, in, in our culture, in our country, and even in my life, I ascribe too important a role to that. In, in, and I, I put too many hopes on it. Like if I could just come up with the right way to say the right thing, you could be free of whatever it is you're burdened by. And that's just not true. It just is not true. Uh, it's the same way as misusing the Bible and thinking that if you can just find the right verse and say it enough times. The Bible is an invitation into an encounter with Jesus, just like teaching is, if teaching's worth anything at all. And so I'm going to do my best to present some facts to you, but I want us to take the time to try to encounter the Lord over it. Make sense? All right, here goes. Um, the sovereignty of God, a simple truth to celebrate or a deep and puzzling mystery. So the first thing I want to declare over us today is that we believe, and I believe, and I hope you believe, that God is sovereign. Anybody here not believe that God is sovereign? Okay, good. So God is sovereign. Well, that's another story. So here's the definition. Here's the definition of sovereign. Uh, one possessing or held to possess supreme political power or sovereignty. And sovereignty then just becomes the manifestation of that, the ability to rule, the ruling, and so on and so forth. Another uh, definition, I think this was Merriam-Webster, one that exercises supreme authority within a limited sphere. Let me explain that one. Uh, it's appropriate to use the word sovereign to describe a king over a specific country, but that does not make him, even though he's a sovereign, a king over the adjacent countries. Make sense? So sovereign can be limited in sphere. That's why when we get into a couple of scriptures here, we're going to see that God is declared sovereign over everything. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the one on high. There's none like you. There's none above you. So when we're talking about sovereignty over any uh, individual, that's limited in scope. And when we're talking about um, sovereignty about God, it means he's the highest sovereign. So there's nobody above him. Make sense? All right. And then uh, an acknowledged leader. And the secondary definition, in case anybody wants to know, is that it's a coin in the British Empire. <laughs> it's a sovereign. Oh, okay. So here are some uh, synonyms. Uh, autocrat in the noun. Autocrat, monarch, potentate, or ruler. Um, ruler is probably the, the easiest one. Potentate has to do with the, the, the potency of the position of a person, so they're way up there and uh, so on. We've had an interesting encounter with a new uh, sort of vision of a sovereign person as we have uh, been sharing with uh, Joel for the last couple weeks. He's been staying with us. He's in California now. Um, you know, because the, the president of uh, Uganda 
is the sovereign. He's over everything. What he says goes, even though it's contained within sort of the symbol of a republic. But uh, then you get down into the ideas as an adjective, cardinal meaning first, central, chief, dominant, first, foremost, highest, key, leading, main, master. You get the point, right? I added El Jefe. I just think that's a cool one. Overbearing, overmastering, overriding. Uh, it, again, it speaks of the authority to be on top, to be on top of the decision-making process. Paramount, predominant, preeminent, premier, primal, primary, uh, principle, and so on. So you get the point. The the meaning of sovereign is that you have the authority to rule. And the meaning of an absolute sovereign is that there's nobody bigger than you to tell you to do what you have to do. Okay. Biblical words for sovereignty. I just want you to know I did my homework. Uh, Malkwith is the Hebrew word. It means a rule or a dominion or a kingdom. So it's mostly used, you know, like a noun. Uh, it's translated two times in the NSB as sovereignty, uh, as applied to, to God the first time in Psalms 103.19 and to the fourth Persian king in Daniel's vision. Uh, sovereignty is applied to him. So there's only two times in the NASB. It's used about, this particular word is used about 90 other times. 50 times or so it's translated as kingdom. Five is realm. 20 is reign. One is empire. Seven is royal, like in the royal treasury or the royal courtyard or crown. So that's uh, Malkwith. That's the Hebrew. Here is an Aramaic version of the exact same word, and it's used exactly the same way. Uh, rule, dominion, or kingdom. It's translated four times as sovereign, T, sovereign T, in the uh, Old Testament. And uh, three of those are attributed to Nebuchadnezzar, and one of them is that fascinating passage. We'll look at it in a little bit more detail in uh, Daniel 7, 5, I think it is. Um, but the, peop the, the sovereignty is transferred to the people of the saints of the Most High. It's that prophecy, if you'll remember, about how that tenth horn came up and was going to rule the whole earth. It's where a lot of eschatological stuff comes from. But it says the uh, sovereignty is going to be given to the saints of the Most High. So again, we're talking rule, right? We're not talking an official position. We're not talking uh, an office someplace in heaven. We're talking a descriptor or a declarer of the fact that something or someone has to rule. The other places in, uh, in there where sovereignty is translated in Daniel is that uh, city is going to lose its sovereignty. So it says Damascus is going to lose its sovereignty. Okay, so sovereignty is just rule, right? All right, here's one more. Uh, Mamlaka is Hebrew for dominion, kingdom, reign, or rule. Same situation. It's translated once as sovereignty in Isaiah 17.3 in the NASB 116 other times. Two is royal, one is king's court, and 114 is kingdom. Now, there's not a lot of other words that, in, there, there aren't any other words, as a matter of fact, except this one in the New Testament that's translated sovereign in uh, Bibles like the NSB. Here's the one and only word for sovereign in the New Testament, and it's uh, dunastes. It's, if you could think about it, it's like where we would get our word dynasty from. And uh, it means sovereign, ruler, or official. This happens to be a noun. It's translated one time as sovereign in the NSB in 1 Timothy 6.15, and that applies to God and Jesus. And as you read it and read it and read it, you can kind of tell that it's, it's uh, applying to both of them. Uh, it's translated in the NSB one other, or, or no, it's translated as rulers. Uh, in, this, this particular word is used three, uh, three times. It's translated as rulers in Mary's Magnificat about, uh, thank you, God, that you've uh, overcome all the rulers and so on and so forth. And it's translated one time with the words court official, and that's the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip was ministering to. So... 
I hope that those uses make you think, because there's like eight uses, seven in the Old Testament, one in the New in the NASB. I hope that they make you think, wow, that's not very min- much biblical reference for how big a doctrine sovereignty has become. Okay? That's it. Eight total in the NSB. Two times about God. Only two of them about God, by the way. Only two. Uh, Okay, so if you did a digital concordance search for sovereign, it will return some surprising results. And this is the thing that knocked me off my chair. I I was doing research about how to talk about sovereignty, and here's what I discovered. If, if you, uh, you know, you want me to say a digital concordance, you look up all the instances of a concordance. What I did is I typed in the word sovereign, and then I put a variable character after it so that it got sovereign, sovereignty, sovereignly, any word, any word about sovereign, okay? There's none in the King James. Now, I did say something the first couple times I shared this, and I said I thought that that was probably because King James had used that as one of his restricted words. I've done some research, and I don't think, I might have thrown the guy under the bus unnecessarily. I don't believe that's, that's uh, uh, the case, or at least I can't confirm it. And so that started me thinking, well, maybe, maybe all of these basic meanings were just sufficient for a couple of the early translations. And um, we'll see in just a second. If you look in the NSB, like I said, there's eight, seven in the Old Testament, one in the New. If you look in the English Standard Version, which is a very reliable uh, version used by a lot of theologians, a lot of translators, stuff like that, there are three, and they're all in the New Testament. So that would lead me to go back and think that ruler and all that kind of stuff, uh, kingdom, it was a sufficient translation for the translators um, back in King James Day as well. And I'm not usually a huge fan of King James, but uh, it seems like he doesn't deserve to have me ostracize him, though. The Revised Standard... There's four. There's one in the Old Testament. There's three in the New Testament. And among these three translations, the only one, I think the only one that's common is, uh, is that Second Timothy passage about, uh, it's where Timothy makes the, or Paul makes the declaration to Timothy that, uh, God, you are the only sovereign. You're the King of kings and you're the Lord of lords. Now, in our, our friend, the NIV, sovereign occurs 305 times. That seems strange to me. So I looked at another modern translation. The New Living, 297 times. In the, in the NIV, 300 in the Old Testament, 5 in the New. And they also include the 1 Timothy 6, 15. Uh, in the New Living Translation, 294. Why? And that was the question that got stirred in me. Why? And I was already thinking along the seeds of the idea because, uh, as you know, I like, to, I like theology, and I got a lot of theology books. I've studied a bunch. And uh, sovereignty plays a, a gigantic role at the foundation of a lot of Western theology, the sovereignty of God. So I'm thinking, but yeah, okay, so King James, we can dismiss this as just a word that wasn't used at the time or was used exclusively for the king or whatever. Uh, eight, you know, the New American Standard tries to be pretty honest with words in their interpretation, and they're clear when they're doing something. And the ones in there make sense, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. There's three of them that refer to him. Uh, God is going to take your sovereignty away from you. And that's when he was condemned to crawl around on the ground and eat grass like a cow, you know. And then his sovereignty was being returned to him and when he acknowledged the, the goodness of God. And another one of the sovereign statements was where he declared that God was sovereign, and that he did as he pleased, and which is an interesting thing because 
the fact that God can do as he pleases is also taken from another psalm, Psalm 103 or something like that. And uh, uh, proponents of the kind of sovereignty that we speak about under the influence of Western uh, Reformed theology and so on is that God does what he wants. He just, he, and there's a capriciousness that's kind of associated with the idea that we can't hold him account for it or we can't figure out what he's going to do. Anyhow, but when you get into the NIV, oops, let me go back. When you get into the NIV, there are obvious... So, so, you know, I ask, so how in the world do they get those if there's not that? Well, it's because they translate other words as sovereign. They translate the word that's normally translated master as sovereign. They translate... Uh, um, the one that's most of it, though, and this just kills me. Nancy, I, I think this will kill you, too. Uh, because I know what you think about these stuff. They translate the word Jehovah as sovereign. In almost over 290 places in the Old Testament where it says Jehovah our God or the Lord our God, they translate the word Adon and Adonai as sovereign, which is Lord. Now, the part that frosts me about translating Jehovah 300 times or however many, all throughout the book of Ezekiel, all throughout Isaiah, a whole bunch of places. It's talking about praise to the Lord our God. Praise to the Lord our God or the Lord our Lord. And I remember, if you, if you guys were, have been at Joyland or, or I've ever talked to you about this for a long time, we went back and we started doing a, a relook at the gospel many years ago. And we started in Genesis. And in Genesis, there's a very interesting use of the word God in two places. Uh, it starts out, God is, is translated out of the Hebrew term Elohim. And then once it gets into dealing with man, the term is introduced Jehovah. Now, if you really basically try to break down and study what Jehovah is, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar or anything else, but the essence of the thing is it's God's proper name, as opposed to God being the title of who he is. So God's proper name, or, or so Genesis switches from talking about God in general as a creator to God with a name dealing with Adam and Eve. Well, we know, by virtue of hindsight in the New Testament, who God with a name is, right? Who's God that has a name? Jesus. There's no other name where he can be saved. He was given a name. God saves. So I find it disturbing that a modern translation would feel that it was appropriate to substitute the living, personal name of God with a word that simply means the authority to rule. It isn't even a title, but when it's used for a title, that's all it means. So when we use the word sovereign, we should be, in our mind, thinking the one who has authority. That's all we should be thinking. When we speak of Jehovah, I'm hoping we're thinking about the triune God manifest fully to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why did the King James have none? Did this translation have, kind of a word-based translation, have only eight? Why did this translation, and am I correct in assuming, I, I should have looked this up, that the uh, English Standard Version is a British translation? Does anybody know that? Anybody carrying an ESV? Do you? Yeah. Look in the beginning and see if it is. 
and what I'm maybe thinking is that in, in these two here, very possibly the influence of knowing what a sovereign is by actually having one in your country makes them only use it appropriately, like the ruler part. But I, I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is that the NIV and the NLT are both translated under, uh, dramatically under the governing influence of, of Western Reformed theology. And as a result of that influence, they have substituted the name of God with the word and concept of sovereignty. And I would like us to rid our thoughts of that all the way, and I'll tell you why. So I think the why is that there's a, a sense of sovereignty of God as a doctrine. What does it mean in common church conversation? How did it come to mean that? And does that meaning help you love your father? Those are the questions that I would like to see us answer. So, I want to show you something. First, now people will accuse me, he only uses his Bible for a visual, but not really, I read it. Do you see these, you see these two red things? In this, this is an NASB, those are the two references where sovereignty is applied to God. One in the New Testament, one in the Old. That's it. You see these yellow? All of those are that, that word, uh, Malku, and it's in Arab, uh, Aramaic, and the, the 117 occurrences of that word are either in the, the story of Esther or in Daniel, because they were both written in Aramaic. And so these are the ones, and then this little lone blue one is in Isaiah. That's it for the word sovereignty. So to the extent that sovereignty rears up as the indisputable, shame on you if you even have a question about it doctrine, it comes from that. One of the things that happens, this is a, a foundation of Pentecostal theology, and so I have some other markers in here. Ignore everything except this one, because I'm doing a study and I don't want to lose my place. But uh, in this theology book, the first part of this book, theology, is about the Bible. The, second part, the very next part is about God himself. So this marker right here is the first place in this theology book that the word sovereignty is introduced. And it's introduced in relationship to God's power. Okay? Understandable. Then here is the first heading of sovereignty. And let me read the first line of the first heading of sovereignty. And this is a Pentecostal theology book. I actually like it. We have already, under the previous heading, discussed God's sovereignty over nations in the unseen realm. Some treatment at this point should be given to the age-long controversy over God's sovereignty versus man's free will. God's sovereignty versus man's free will. Dan, did you figure it out yet? Okay, okay, so it was European in origin. And, and again, maybe that's why the, the, you know, the word sovereignty was held to mean what it meant in common usage at that time. And as Americans, we're free to translate sovereignty into any ridiculous thing because we have no idea about what it like, it's like to have a sovereign in our midst. All right, so that was the first line there. Um, I wanted to try to understand the concept and represent the concept of Western theology 
and sovereignty as it's applied in that Reformed tradition. So I went to John MacArthur's church, because I think John's a very articulate guy, and I think he loves the Lord, and I think he's pretty good at, at expressing what he believes. Agreed? And I'm not trying to do this to be pejorative, I guarantee it. Let me uh, sit down here for a second and read it. So this is from uh, John MacArthur's church, uh, Grace Church, there in Southern California. And it it's, uh, comes from the page called The Sovereignty of God, which is among their distinctives. And if you want later, and Laurel's going to be sending the PowerPoint out, so you're welcome to use it. And you can go look at the rest of the stuff they say. But here is what it says. This is the first paragraph and the fifth paragraph. No doctrine is more despised by the natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride loathes the suggestion that God orders everything, controls everything, and rules over everything. The carnal mind burning with enmity against God abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except according to his eternal decrees. And then this paragraph continues on to talk about salvation and about how it goes into the election and how God just simply chooses some to be saved and doesn't choose others. Uh, and, and um, you know, they don't, in this statement of belief, talk about him choosing them to be damned, but nevertheless, that's the consequence of the belief. Moreover, everything that exists in the universe, this is paragraph 5, exists because God allowed it, decreed it, and called it into existence. And then here are the scriptures that they use to substantiate it. And this is just a copy and paste quote. Uh, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Okay. Uh, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And that's Ephesians 1.11. From him and through him and to him are all things. And... uh, for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And that's 1 Corinthians eight sixteen. So I want to say, I don't have any dispute with any of those scriptures. I don't necessarily think they add any significant thing to the meaning of the word sovereignty. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you see it? So, for instance, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. How does sovereignty add a single bit of information to what pleases God. Because he has the authority of the rule, we can discern what he's going to do with that rule, how he's going to use that authority. Because God has the authority to rule, we can discern that uh, uh, one event or another event, this is exactly how God thought about him and what he wanted about him. This is a leap that is ridiculous and destructive. Because what it does is it puts us in charge of the interpretation of what the heart of God is like. Now, I'm all for living in union, (laughs) but that union doesn't give me the authority to to just willy-nilly decide what God is doing and what he's not doing. Let's go into a couple more here. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deeps. Well, I would say a hearty amen to that. But that doesn't tell me what he chooses to do. Do you see my point? He works all things after the counsel of his will. He does in fact. But does that tell me what his will is? No, I have to look someplace else for that, right? I can't look at sovereignty for that. So, uh, one of the most horrific stories I ever heard was about a mom and a two-year-old. And the mom was shopping in like a Walmart or something like that. 
And she walked out the front, and she was going over her receipt, and she was kind of upset because she felt like she got overcharged for something. She was, she was going over it. And her little girl was tugging on her, her uh, pants and says, is it safe to go, Mommy? Is it safe to go? And she was distracted, and she goes, yes, it is. And the little girl stepped out, and a semi ran over it, killed her. I think that is probably one of the saddest stories I've ever heard, and I've heard some sad ones. Sovereignty cannot tell you that that was God's will. It cannot. But, but it's used that way. Well, the Lord taketh away, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Yeah. Stuff like that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's hurtful. All right. Um, there's but one God and Father from whom all things exist, and we exist for him and one Lord and Jesus Christ by whom all things, and we exist through him. There's a whole... So, one of the interesting things that I find about Reformed theology and how it's applied in our culture in the West is that when all applies to one of these statements about God being able to do what he pleases, that means all. 100% every single atrocity, every single blessing, every single natural disaster, every, every uh, single person that finds a, a, a gold nugget. All means all when it's attached to the modern concept of sovereignty in the West. But all doesn't mean all when it talks about Jesus dying for sinners or all being made alive or all being born again. Right? We just got to start thinking a little straighter. We got to start thinking a little bit straighter. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time beating them up. Sovereignty simply means... No, no. Sovereignty simply means first in rank... The authority rule, not having to answer to another, or something like that. Something restricted like that. Sovereignty, uh, you know, like the, the, the definition said of us, limited sphere. No, that's not what we're talking about, because God is sovereign over all creation and over everything. But it means that he is first in rank. It means that you can't find another God behind him. It means that he has the authority to rule. And it means that uh, it doesn't say where he's going to rule, when he's going to rule, how he's going to rule, and how that rule is going to be manifest. And that God doesn't have to answer to another. And that's a significant thing. Because if you talk to most people about sovereignty, they'll uh, eventually or quickly in the conversation get to a list of things that God can't do. Like God has to punish sin. Why? He's sovereign. He could let us all run around like rebellious little two-year-olds if he wants. Right? We could chew on the table legs. We could be on the floor. We could do all kinds of things. If he's sovereign, he can do that. Yes? Yeah, we have. Yeah, a couple of times. I've still got the splinters from the table leg. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, uh, you know, so, so God must punish sin or he can't let, let sin go unpunished. Uh, those are statements of anti-sovereignty. But they're all wrapped up in the concept of sovereignty as it's taught in our culture. And I want us to kind of be free of that. So, if we use a modern Western theological lens and the assumptions, sovereignty is almost always immediately pitted against the concept of man, like this theology book showed. And you can pull up any theology book. And within the first five or six sentences, as soon as they're talking about sovereignty, they're going to cast it as a counterpoint to man's free will. Let me make a bold declaration to you. God is sovereign... So he can give you a free will if he wants. Period. There's no arguing that. If you say he can't, then you say he's not sovereign. He's bound by a set of rules outside himself. And God isn't bound by those things outside himself. 
And so if you could find something inside himself that willed for you not to have a, a meaningful choice, well, then we'd, we'd look. But it's not in the Bible. It's a speculation philosophically. And it comes from Plato, frankly, almost 100%. Plato and Aristotle argued back and forth about the nature of God's manifestation in the earth, uh, about him being the uncaused cause, the first mover. And every time they developed a point more fully, there was distance between God and the world. And in fairness to them, they were trying to get away from the petty gods of, of, of Zeus and stuff that were constantly having sex with people and, and then throwing lightning bolts at them and drowning them and stuff like that. They wanted, they, they, God's got to be bigger than that. He's got to be better than that. He is bigger and better. He's sovereign. He rules. He's the one and only sovereign. King of kings and Lord of lords, according to Paul and Timothy. But what was lost in that process of attributing morality to sovereignty was a God that we could relate to or know or that could express himself or give us a meaningful choice. Sovereignty, a sovereign God is not necessarily a moral God. And if you think of God primarily as sovereign, or if you're boxed into a corner in an argument thinking about God as sovereign, you will end up with a God who is not moral. And that's what we've got in Western Christianity. We've got a God who, because of his sovereignty, has to take causative responsibility for every stillborn child, for the rape of every small girl, for every person who dies of starvation, in spite of the fact that perhaps one of the local sovereigns who were made in the image of God kept all the food for himself or crushed the economy or did the kind of abysmal things that I've been learning about happen around the world. Sovereignty is not a statement of morality. It is a statement of authority. We should celebrate God's sovereignty. We should be able to be children who, who when we come up against somebody who wants to challenge it, we go, my daddy can do anything. My daddy can do anything. That's all it means. My daddy can do anything. So where do we look to find out what my daddy who can do anything will do? It's not sovereignty. We have to look at who he is. We have to look at what drives him. Okay, so you go back to one of the statements there in the Grace Church thing, that he acts according to his will. Well, what's his will? Well, I don't know. Uh, I heard one that, that uh, quoted where his will was said that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If he's sovereign, maybe we ought to at least open the door in our mind to the fact that he's going to figure out a way to get his will. And not, not be called a flake or somebody who's not serious about sin or the gospel. Just because we ask the question, is it possible that God does everything according to his own will and he has the power to do it? And so don't let anybody label you as something that's pejorative or shuts down the discussion, like in that case would be universalist, when all you're doing is saying, if God is sovereign, he can act according to his will, and he, this is what his will is. So... I don't know how that's going to happen, and I'm not saying that it is, but I'm certainly going to take his side in it if I get a chance, and I'm going to pray that my super obnoxious neighbor, in fact, goes and not just write him off as being one who God used his will to determine was just going to be created as a yard ornament and then burned up in the end. That's not sovereignty. That's monstrosity. <laughs> we have to think about it. You see what I'm talking about? Uh, when you get in those arguments, so this the first thing that goes in, a, in an argument about modern uh, Western 
theology sovereignty is that your free will doesn't make anything. It doesn't matter. But then you're constantly, constantly, constantly being called to, uh, well, you should choose to do right. You should do the better thing. You should make the right choice. You should do, why? Why? Why should I waste time, mental energy, making any choice at all if that sovereignty is true? Or, when did you receive the Lord? What difference does it make? Who cares? Why? If that sovereignty makes. But that sovereignty isn't. That sovereignty just means God rules. It also means that he's our father, and as a father, he sent his son. And that's what makes a difference. When they asked Jesus, what do we have to do to do the works of God, this sovereign one? He said, you need to believe in the one he sent. You see what I'm saying? This is why, and I, I told everybody the other night, I go, look, I, I read and study about a lot of things, and I don't get that fired up about all of them. And some of them, I would translate it differently, or I would look at it differently as a doctrine or whatever. Most of them, I don't care, you know. A little nuance here or there, it's no big deal. Um, I always remember that Jesus' name in Mexico is Jesus. So there's only one name where we can all be saved. Is it Jesus or is it Jesus? I don't, I don't think that's the way you determine priorities, okay? I don't think that's it. I think there's a bigger issue here. But this one and other doctrines like this that build a distance between us and God, a distance between us and the wall, would you be proud of your father if he organized, I don't know, what, what are the statistics on how many uh, underage girls are, are trafficked and, and uh, sexually trafficked? They're huge. The numbers are huge, right? Would you be proud of your dad if he did that? I wouldn't. Now, you can soften the argument and flip it around. Well, he allowed it. Well, yeah, he allowed you to act like an idiot, too. <laughs> Because if he just brought the hammer down the first time any of us were wrong, we'd all be flat. <laughs> we'd all be flat. And Tim's, Tim's original doctrine would be right, that God was waiting to squash us like a bug. Uh, the only error in it was that he wasn't waiting. He was actually doing it. God's sovereignty allows him to give us meaningful lives, meaningful choices, choices that affect eternity, choices that affect our life, choices that affect the lives of our neighbors. That's what sovereignty means. But it doesn't tell us the choice he's going to give us. It doesn't tell us the way he's going to do. We have to look to something else. So let's, uh, let's see here. I've got a couple more notes. So modern Western theology is based on separation and depravity, and it strongly has influenced that thing in the NIV. And that's why they want to... I, I mean, I'm not trying to accuse individual people of that. I'm just saying the influence of that thought, well, we should, we should emphasize sovereignty. So instead of calling it Lord or Jehovah... We should call it sovereignty. Instead of calling it Adonai or Lord, sovereignty is a good word, or sovereign is a good word. No, it's not. Because sovereign doesn't speak of the characteristic of God that the bruised reed he won't break or the smoldering wick he won't extinguish. God doesn't, uh, sovereignty doesn't speak of the fact that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, even though a lot of sovereign doctrine quotes that passage of Scripture, meaning he has the choice to do that. He does, and he's chosen to do it. He's chosen to send the blessing to everybody of sunshine and rain and air and the flowers. And, you know, like, it's always uh, been a mystery to me when I watch like a gangster movie in the United States, a, a mafia movie, especially when it involves uh, like the Italian mob. Because on one hand, you got them, you know, tying guys up and, and uh, sticking their feet in concrete and throwing them in the river or 
shooting them out in an alley and leaving them to be picked over by the dogs or whatever. And then they got uh, their their time at church and their reverence for the church and the gifts and all this kind of stuff and, and, and the esteeming a grandma and all that kind of thing. That's us, guys. That's us manifesting the freedom that a sovereign God gave us. And he's doing it because he has hopes for his children to be something other than a robot, something other than a trained dog. And when we apply a formula to determine the morality of God to the power that he has to be sovereign, we are doing something that is wrong, something that is unhealthy, and something that tempts us to make God in our own image and try to understand him that way. When in fact, eternal life is knowing the real one, the real sovereign God, who acts according to his will and whose will is revealed in Jesus, and who acts according to his nature and his nature is revealed as Father, and who acts according to who he is declared to be, and the who he is declared to be is love. Such theology insists that you link the fact that God is sovereign, and he is, to determine or assume what he does. It's neither clear nor relational nor helpful thinking. Okay, so this is the one, this is what I want us to think about today, and this is what I want us to, to get rid of. And, and So I've got one more slide, I think, and then I'll entertain some questions. If you can agree with me that the concept of sovereignty purely is a matter of authority, we can go a long way by separating our expectations of morality from that. You can have two different sovereigns in two different countries. Or you could have one sovereign after another in the same country. A king, a president, whatever it turns out to be. One of them could do horrific things like make it a law that nobility gets to sleep with girls as soon as they're 12 years old. That's what that king did across from uh, William Wallace. Another one, you can have a king that gives everything to develop his country and use himself, his authority, his relationships, and his resources to bless his people. And there are examples of that in places. Sovereignty doesn't say which one's going to do what. Morality does. Character does. Will does. Worldview does. Things that influence morality, you know, pray to God, that if someone is a sovereign in your life, in a limited realm, that he also has a good moral character. That he has a father's heart. That's what that's about. That's why. So, reject sovereignty. This is what I want us to do. I want us to reject sovereignty as an explanation of anything good, or anything that God does or does not seem to do. And I want to start thinking more about who God is and how he's revealed. So, first of all, he's your father. Very plain. Jesus came. His primary revelatory mission was not about sin. It was not about heaven. It was about the fact that God is your Father. And I will, I will prove that in two simple ways of reflection in the New Testament. When they wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill him for calling God his Father. Because they said, you make yourself out to be equal with God. Remember that? And when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, he could have said, pray, O King on high, pray, Ancient of Days, pray, Creator of all. He didn't. He said, pray, Our Father. Jesus' mission was to reveal the Father. 
because that's who God is. And that's the image of God that had been lost when sons rebelled down through the ages when Israel rebelled all the time. He's good. God is good. It's kind of a nebulous term, but he is good. You can see it in the fruit of his spirit. Right? Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, joy. He is, by, by definition, by noun in the New Testament, he is love, spirit, light, and fire. Now, that leaves a pretty good spectrum of how God might act and what he might choose to do. He's going to act out of love. He's going to act as a spirit. He's going to act to illuminate. And he is going to act to purify, if you believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So there's plenty of room to discern what God is doing. And there's plenty of room to actually explain why he might choose to act in one situation and not act in another and all this kind of stuff. So we can talk about those things. Okay? We can talk about those things. But I don't want, any, I don't want anybody that I have any influence over, including myself, to uh, get back in the corner and try to play the uh, God is sovereign card. Go ahead and, and, and say, I don't know. That would be better. I don't know why God didn't do that. Or I don't know why this seems like God did. But don't play the sovereign card, okay? And here's the last one. God is fully revealed in Jesus. So I had to bring back up our little icons. If you see something happen and you can't picture it being done by Jesus, it probably wasn't. And if it wasn't done by Jesus, it wasn't done by the Spirit because they're one. And if it wasn't done by the Spirit, it wasn't done by the Father because they are the same one in that sense. So that's one way. And then over here, we are complete in him. So this first icon is the one about God uh, being revealed fully in Jesus, right? The second icon is the one about us being complete in him. So what does that mean? If we are complete in him, and if you remember the passage we focused on in, in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, it pleased God that in Christ the fullness of deity in bodily form would dwell. And in the very next sentence, it says, and you are complete in him. So is it so strange that our sovereign father, being a father and wanting the best for us, would give us good gifts, one of those gifts being, being made in his image and being able to make choices that are meaningful in our lives and the lives of people around us? It's not that hard to understand. And it doesn't deserve in every theology book in the land, to, which it's not in every one, quite honestly, but it doesn't deserve to immediately be pitted against our free will. I'm not saying I have a free will by virtue of my stature, or I have a free will by virtue of anything except the fact that I was made in the image of God, and he gave me one. And if I'd spend more time concentrating on what to do with my free will, rather than pitting it against some bizarre, beastly concept of the sovereignty of my Father, then I think I could probably make more progress in life and help people do the same. Sovereignty, so the simplest term is this. Sovereignty just means that God has nobody he answers to, and he can do what he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants. I might have even put that in there, but I don't think I did. Nope, I put our prayer up. We'll save that for the end. Uh, so I'm open to some questions if anybody's got any. Thoughts, comments? What's different? Sovereignty, it is. You want to put that on the mic? 
<laughs> so let me ask you, as you ask, the, go ahead and ask, go ahead and make your statement. That seems very different than maybe what I've been, or than what I've been taught about the sovereignty of God. Right. Does it make sense to you? Yes. Good. But part of that is because I was at the Tuesday study where we talk about this. That is true. So for those and of I've you had that more time to think, think about, about it. it, but it struck you as different at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But also helpful. How many, how many is this radically different than what you've thought about sovereignty? Okay. I, I, I got another little question I want to ask real quick. Uh, how many of you in the last year have had a conversation with somebody over some event that happened or didn't happen or whatever where the concept of sovereignty came up? All right. No, hold your hands up again. I want to just see. So it's about, it's about, it's better than three-quarters of the people in the room. It's about 90%. All right, let me ask you another question. How many of you have had a conversation uh, in the last year where the mutability came up? No? Okay. How about the doctrine of providence? Three. Now, what? What does this tell you? What does this tell you? It tells you that this obscured, the simple to understand but dramatically expanded doctrine of sovereignty has been thrust into a place in our consciousness where we use it as an excuse for every confusing thing that goes on in our lives. Really, immutability should be more of that, and providence should be right at the top of the list because providence actually indicates that God does everything that gets done. That's what that doctrine says. But because nobody knows it, knows what it means, it's not a big deal. But you see how sovereignty has been lifted up and perverted? Uh, Vicki. Okay, so if, if, if God is um, sovereign according to not this, the other definition. To our definition or the other? The other. Okay. Um, then wouldn't a person be right to say, well, God made me this way, so I don't need to change. I don't need to get rid of my rage. I don't need to be you know, not thinking about um, whatever, um, you know, God made me this way, you know, so I'm, I'm going to be a stripper or I'm going to be a, a drug runner or I'm going to be whatever. So if, if, if it's the sovereignty of God that makes us who we are, then what is the point? <laughs> okay, here we go. What is the point of the cross? All right, let me let me uh, let me let uh, the the material from MacArthur's church explain that. What about sin? God is not the author of sin, but he certainly allows it. It is integral to his eternal degree. God has a purpose for allowing it. He cannot be blamed for evil or tainted by its existence. There is no one holy like the Lord, but he certainly wasn't caught off guard or standing helpless to stop it when sin entered the universe. We do not know his purpose for allowing sin. Clearly, in the general sense, he allowed sin in order to display his glory, attributes that would not be revealed apart from evil, mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, and salvation. And God sometimes uses evil to accomplish good. How can these things be? Scripture does not answer all the questions, but it does teach that God is utterly sovereign, perfectly holy, and absolutely just. Admittedly, these truths are hard for human minds to embrace, but Scripture is unequivocal. And then he goes on. God controls all things right down to the choosing of who will be saved. So basically what they do is punt the question. They punt the question. And they punt the question because they believe that defending this kind of inclusive... Uh, moral equivalency doctrine of sovereignty is so important 
that they're willing to have a bunch of beastly things associated with it and no answer for it. Because to think truly about that, if God is sovereign and controls all those issues and nothing happens without his decree, did you hear those things? And there's other ways that people talk about it. Nothing happens that he did not ordain it. That means uh, bless it to happen. Decree it. Speak it into existence. It's the wrong. It, 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 that's not something associated with sovereignty. Yet when God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance, that isn't an insufficient declaration in Scripture. Right, because it's all. Because it's all, but it doesn't include all the bad But it's not all over this. Or all yeah. The, yeah, all the uh, detached traces. So, yeah, there's, you're right, though. If that were how it would be, I'm here. surprised people don't. Jen. So mine's not a question, it's a comment. Okay. So um, thank you for tackling the subject. needs to be dismantled because I think it's the most horrific doctrine out there yeah. that um, not only makes God out to be this unpredictable evil, you never know what he's going to do to yeah. you, um, it renders us passive to accept um, disease and all kinds of things. And I've told you this testimony, but I'll just say it for the sake of um, an application that happens over and over again. Do we have time for a couple yeah, minutes? Uh -huh. So, a um, friend of mine who is one of the first Christians I met uh, when I was 18, um, we were very close and then theologically we kind of <laughs> were doing this over, over time in my spiritual journey. but. This sovereignty, the wrong conception of sovereignty, um, literally killed her uh, because when she got leukemia last year, she took it as the God's will thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe he'd heal her and maybe he wouldn't. So she stayed in a passive role and it didn't really matter what, I tried to say to her um, that doctrine was just like a wall, that there was no mm -hmm. getting through. And she died unnecessarily because she wouldn't fight that spiritually. And right. what better tactic of the devil to get us to think that this is God doing this to you mm -hmm. and, to, and to fight against it would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, not being a very good uh, Christian. I mean, right. so just think about it. Is there not a better strategy that the enemy uses no, this is, to I make this God is really, really out essential. to be the evil one and, and we're just going to passively accept everything? So I'm glad you're talking about it. I'm glad you're confronting the lies of it because it's one of the most pervasive, uh, destructive doctrines that is so prevalent in our country. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, in, in, it's in horrid. A, in our so I'll tell you the real reason that, I mean, that's a, that's a good reason that I think we should address this and try to get beyond it. Another reason is because it's non-relational. It's anti-relational. It, it causes God to be more and more distant rather than closer and closer. 
One other thing about those two little icons of Jesus fully representing God and us being completing God is that in every situation where we're confused, it draws us to God because we know that we've been invited to come. And it's not just an icon that says it. It's the scripture that says it. It says, you know, uh, because we have a, a high priest in Christ Jesus who's passed it in, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy. You need mercy because you've screwed up. That's just inevitable. You need mercy, and he gives it. And then you receive grace to help in time of need. Or he who comes to God must believe something about him. Not that he's sovereign. Although you could sort of say that was contained in the part that he is. But that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. Not a punisher. That, that would be twisting that scripture to try to balance something. God's goodness is not balanced against evil. In him is light, and there is no darkness at all. We live in a world where all this is that way, where everything has its counterbalance, where you don't even see a shadow without light, and you don't have a light without a shadow. But that is not the way the world really is, and it's not the way the world's really going to be. So this idea of sovereignty tries to explain things by loading a bunch of moral suppositions on it. Now, I also don't want us to err on the other side, which some of our faith-filled, word of faith, believing, healing people... We, say, we, we also say that God can't ever do anything that causes us anything that we feel like would be pain or discomfort or challenge. But there's all kinds of instances in Scripture where people are brought under deep conviction or other things. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I just want us to be careful and realize that the fact that God can do something isn't what he does. That's why I'm saying instead of... Uh, you know, dropping the bomb with the sovereignty card in our own heart even, or mind. Let's just say, would a good father do that? Can I see Jesus doing that? Is somebody who always acts out of love going to do that? Does God have wrath? Yes. Is wrath pleasant? I don't think so. But it comes from love. So we have to start thinking about that. So if I'm going to continue to run that way, I'm going to feel the pressure of God saying, don't go there. It's anti-obedience. Just like if I obey and go out on the streets, I'm going to run into things where God can show up and show himself off. Well, here he's going to show up and show himself off, and I'm not going to like it. And, and honestly, most people don't attribute the discipline of God to the, the uh, sovereignty of God anyway. <laughs> it's not a term you associate together like you do when somebody happens to somebody else, Tim. Yeah, um, and we discussed it too in, in the Tuesday Bible study. But I'm so glad you covered this. I mean, for years I'm realizing that I really haven't believed the old way of sovereignty right. because I do know that God is good now. God is loving. You yeah. know, He cares about us. He gave us the greatest gift. He gave us His Son. He gave us the Holy Spirit that we could live out our days and 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 pull in on all His wonderful gifts. Mm -hmm. And then I was uh, also contemplating the fact that even when there's uh, sin in our lives, he gave us the tools to deal with that. Mm -hmm. He gave us forgiveness, mm -hmm. you know. He gave us Jesus, who we know as the Son of Man, too, mm -hmm. in a form that and we can relate And he gave us to. meaningful choices to yeah. react to those things yeah. in our lives. So, I mean, it is just completely different. And uh, like, like Jen was saying, I've known a lot of people, including myself, in past, like, you know, God will squash you like a grape. Mm -hmm. It wasn't difficult for me to believe that, you know, especially if you had a disciplinary father mm -hmm. who, who treated you that way, you know. But his love just 
covers all. It does. And, and, and what I was trying to say when I was saying, I don't want us to go uh, dogmatically the other way and try to box everything in. Uh, he might spank me like a four-year-old, too. And I don't know what form that would take. And I, but I want to be careful that, I, again, it's going to take a form that you could easily would do. I mean, if we think about the, the, the discipline, the, the scripture says it plainly, that what father uh, that loves his children doesn't discipline them? And that's just for temporary things. So be open to the as we seek to analyze the things that come and go in our lives and God's role in relationship to them. But, uh, and the only way we can do that is not look at this sovereignty as the issue, but look at fatherhood as the issue. Look at the revelation. Jesus is the issue. Look at love, life, light, and, and fire. I think fire is where a little bit of that discipline comes. Dennis. Well, first of all, I have a, a vision of a huge can of worms that you just opened up. Okay. But uh, other than that, uh, sovereign and sovereignty... When I was a young Baptist child, they taught it the old way. Mm -hmm. And I've since learned better because the Bible is clear about the nature of God, and his nature is love. And if we want proof, Jesus said he's the expressed image of God. Sovereign comes from people who do not know how to explain a circumstance, especially a negative circumstance, and they don't know where the blame goes. They don't know where the responsibility goes. And so they have what I have heard it called circumstance theology. I can't explain the circumstance, so I'll come up with a theology to explain it. And usually God gets the blame. Right. And he's not responsible for it. And again, like I said, a huge can of worms. I don't know uh, how we they, could talk about a lot of other things. Maybe like I get to go to a theological conference. I get to go to a theological conference in, in uh, <laughs> 60 days. And this is one of the things I'm going to bring up to the guys. How do we recast among the people we lead the vision of sovereignty. So here's a thought that came to my head while you were talking. Sovereignty empowers God's character and will. What do you think? It makes some sense, right? Yes, Sterling. Do you do you feel like you identified sort of a a time where everything kind of shifted towards sovereignty? Was there? Could you see a timeline of that developing? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it flowed out of the Refor it flowed out of the Reformation quite a bit. I think so. I think so. And then uh, again. Uh, in defense of those guys, they were looking for stuff. If, if, if I have another book called uh, Strong Systematic Theology, it uses a lot of different theological perspectives, and writes them in different kind of fonts and stuff. There's amazing stuff that Luther talked about God's sovereignty and kept it within those frames. Uh, John Calvin gets a lot of credit for what his students ended up and his followers ended up stretching it out of shape. But when you start looking judicially or juridically, and then you have to see, we're, we're, we don't like ambiguity. God, if you can do what you want and you have all power, why don't you do what I want? Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to just sit there in that. Well, that's because I don't know why that. I don't know why that he doesn't do that. God doesn't have to answer that question. But, but the truth is God can do what he wants, and what he wants is governed by internally, who he is, as father and love and so on. Yeah, Jen. Well, you, 
This might not come up today, but you mm -hmm. introduced the word discipline. I think that's a whole other area is, that needs yeah. to be explored because that's how else this is couched. Mm -hmm. um, you're disciplined by right. God putting disease on you yeah. or you got in that car crash yeah. or yeah. he's punishing you in some way. And what I read in the Bible is that the word corrects us. Uh, we have a Holy Spirit who can lean on us, mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's not, again, putting these horrific things right. on. But I anyway, agree. I would encourage no, the I agree. whole we talk have to look about at that. discipline. Because, yeah. because people are going to come up and say, well, then what about, and then what about, and then what about? I want us to have answers. But here's the reason that the whatabouts don't ever get answered, because everybody just assumes that it's all up or down in that realm of sovereignty, when really we ought to be looking at, why do you do this? Father. Or how do I see this in Jesus? Or why didn't you do this? Like one of the great ones to start that way is, why doesn't God stop atrocities? Well, there's a reason probably. But it's not because he's sovereign and he likes atrocities. It's, but then he does sometimes. And why does he do it sometimes and not other times? What is? I don't think that we're going to be able to get all those answers because I don't think we can see all the reference points that God has. However, there is a consistency about who God is as revealed in Jesus Christ, and it allows us to do what we're supposed to do, which is ultimately trust him. What, um, trust him to be good. Trust him to be fathered. Trust him to be with us. Trust him to interact with us and stuff like that. Yeah, Ronnie. And then we've got to shift to worship here. This is, uh, this is a sort of a comment and then a question and then okay. a thought provoker, All maybe. Right. Okay. Um, part of what you had said is one of the uses of sovereignty is sort of as an excuse as God made me this way. Yeah, Vicky said that. Vicky said that. Okay, go ahead. Good job. Or bad job. Um, so what that means is there's a lot of stuff in our society right now, like right now, yeah. being like black is called white. Yes. They're just, it's just kind of craziness. This is going to be a topic that, you know, I've already encouraged Larry by just asking him. But um, what about the concept of homosexuality and saying, it's the way God made me, I can't change. Right, right. So does that well, first of bring all, in the idea Well, how we're made and the fact that we can't change is a lie. R right. Yeah, I was made two uh, cells that started dividing. I've changed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. So that part's a lie. But... I understand what you're saying because people will try to use attached sovereignty to the excuse of who they are. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's just. And sometimes I think maybe we need to let people live in the consequences of their choice, their thought. Okay. Well then, go for it. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, I, I don't have time to explain it right now, but I've been reading George McDonald, and he has introduced that concept into my life, where he doesn't waste a lot of time trying to persuade anybody of anything, because. He knows that his persuasion can't change them. What he does is he tries to present the truth and love them to prove that that truth is real and let Holy Spirit change them. Uh, Richard? Some of the things that uh, we would say, that, well, that's God um, caused that, but there's been a lot of things where we've been praying and God has said, I will answer that prayer and cause that disaster not to touch you in some way. In some yeah. Oh. And there's been testimony and testimony over how... Uh, Exactly. Here's the part, and this will even go to the part Jen was talking about about discipline. I think she stepped out. Oh no, she's back at drums. Uh, 
one of the reasons that this view of sovereignty and having it immediately theologically, every time you have a conversation about it, pitted against the free will of man, is that it absolves man of any responsibility of being given sovereign gifts. We were given, Adam and Eve were given the sovereignty over the earth. And they squandered it. And as a result, the earth is currently suffering and groaning under that, according to Romans 8. But it's waiting for men's glory to be revealed, the sons of God's glory to be revealed, and that glory is a manifestation of sovereignty. That's what we're waiting for. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. Law? I think to Jen's point about talking about discipline, one thing I'm realizing is people use uh, discipline and punishment interchangeably yeah. like they're the same word and they're not the same word right. and so I always this is going to sound funny I always uh, I'm a big Adventures and Odyssey fan for any of you that <laughs> little kids rated drama and they have this one where this kid's telling a kid well no I have to play piano I have to be disciplined and the, the other kid goes oh you're going to get a spanking <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. because we in today's culture use those two things as they're right. the same thing and they are very different so when I think we bounce into the concept punishment. of discipline versus punishment yeah. that we really need to because right. even this, adults really use them exactly and when so we like get we home you're going to be disciplined you know Josh the thing you brought up a few weeks ago that kind of got this as part of the trajectory uh, the, the one thing that's got to be a big governing factor God is love and there is no fear in love we had to try to deal with that even though there's fear of God and the reason there isn't is because love involves punishment and so somehow we've got to give those more Fear involves punishment. Yeah, and, and uh, so we've got to give those realities more weight, which I don't hear those things being discussed. Matter of fact, I have a, uh, a family member who, when I tried to share a book about this with him, he said, well, God's more, there's more to God than love. Well, yeah, there is, but there's nothing about God that is outside of love and nothing that doesn't come from love. And so we've got to start giving these weight. I think we can have the discussions about discipline or about events in our life. Uh, and I think I'm, you know, I, I said God might spank me like a four-year-old. I don't really know if he'll do that, to tell you the truth. That's why I've got to think about it, because Laurel's right. We have a tendency to equate these things, because that's how we see them. Um, the key is always this. If you act like a four-year-old. If I act like a four-year-old, I might suffer the consequences of acting like a four-year-old. We'll have to get to it. Okay, real quick, uh, Sterling. And no, something you said was um, this strange sense of a need for balance. Yeah. And it, that actually kind of resonated with me. It's almost like people feel like if there's too much good, there has to be sort Something of a darkness, the yeah. bad side, the yin and yang, right? It's almost well, a Buddhist it, it, concept. It was even said there in Grace Church's thing that mercy, forgiveness, compassion, they could not exist if God didn't allow sin. Huh? That's weird. Yes, Ray. Yes. Um, you know, we question why God hardened Pharaoh's heart sometimes. Uh -huh. And why he hardened his heart, because he wanted to show his, you know. That's one of those questions we're going to have to wrestle with yeah. to understand it. So that's all I wanted to say about but that. the act of hardening Pharaoh's heart was not done outside of love. And so we'll have to see. And, and uh, I will just throw one last thought out there about that exact topic. So if you go back and study history, uh, Nineveh did not repent the way the book of Jonah says. It was at a different time and a different way, and it eventually was destroyed. So why is the book of Jonah in there? 
And I'm not saying that the book of Jonah is not true. The book of Jonah is one of the primary illustrations of the fact that people can be on course to the judgment of God and change. And the judgment is lifted. That'll probably play a factor into how this kind of stuff. Do I think that if Pharaoh had stepped up after the, after the uh, fifth plague and gone, Whoa! I see that God is God. And he probably would have said something stupid like Nebuchadnezzar did while he was proclaiming his submission to God. Do I think God would have destroyed the armies of Israel in the Red Sea? No, he wouldn't have had to. It wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been a consequence of that. So somehow we've got to learn. And again, the, the, the beauty of it is that we have Jesus to look at and we have the Father to ask. And we have ascensions to go on and try to sort it all out. So what I want us to do is I want us to pray. But if, if you would just pray with me this prayer. Uh, go ahead and stand up. And then we're going to worship. When I say seal stuff, I don't know what that means to you guys. Give yourself to an encounter with the Lord. And let him, let him give you the courage. Race these things and step forward. God, I honor you as my sovereign. You just say it after me. God, I honor you as my sovereign. God, I honor you as my sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I trust you in your goodness. Wisdom, power, and love for me. Jesus, I thank you for revealing the true nature of Father's eternal. Never mind. Jesus, I thank you for revealing the true nature. Jesus, I thank you for revealing the true nature of Father's eternal, other-centered, never-changing, sacrificial love for me. Holy Spirit, I trust you to help me walk out each day in the glory and assurance of Papa's love in Jesus. Lord, all the other questions, we give ourselves to you to teach us as we go forward. But we trust you, we love you, and we want to worship you now.